Welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast, the podcast where we interview Jewish philosophers and educators on topics in Jewish philosophy, theology, and Jewish thought. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and visit www.jewishphilosophypodcast.com for more information. Enjoy! Rabbi Rowe, welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast. The title of this podcast is Maimonides and Aristotle. So to begin, could you tell us a bit about how you became involved in philosophy? Um, okay, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here. It's so nice to be with you. Um, how did I get involved in philosophy? I think as a kid, I was just very questioning. And um, they didn't have the internet in those days. So I had to get to libraries and, and read books. And, and it just I found philosophy quite from a young age quite fascinating. I studied it at university. So, yeah, and I think I've been been exploring it ever since. Okay. Okay, so we can start with the first question. So, so who was Aristotle? Let's start with that question. Who was Aristotle? Um, so Aristotle is uh, one, one of the, uh, generally seen as one of the greatest or the greatest philosopher ever lived. Philosophy, philosophy is the Greek word, comes from the Greek word of phila, which means to, uh, the philo is to love. And uh, sophia is, sophist is, is wisdom. And it comes from Socrates who said, who's, who said famously, I'm not wise. I'm not a sophist. I'm not a person with wisdom. I'm a lover of wisdom, a seeker of wisdom. And in ancient Greece, or the ancient uh, Athenian world, had, after Socrates, Plato, and after Plato, Aristotle. Aristotle was a student of Plato. And he's, he, he's, he lived in the fourth century BC and, uh, and is widely considered to have put forward some of the most profound certainly in the ancient world, works of philosophy. And those days, philosophy was all of studyable wisdom. So lo- works in logic, works in early attempts to do what today we'd call science, works in um, everything. Today, we'd probably call it biology and physics and, and things like that. But but a lot of thought and understanding how we categorize the world, all, all that's um, Aristotle. So could you give us some examples of his works? So he has a famous piece of work called Physics, right, where he, and he has another work called Metaphysics. So physics will explore that which you can directly experiment upon and try to reach conclusions of. And metaphysics would be, be going beyond that and thinking about um, uh, questions like, for example, uh, we use one word to describe millions of different objects or millions of different states, like the word blue to describe millions of different things. Uh, we have a concept in our head of blue. So Plato felt the concept was ultimately detached from the real world. And Aristotle said, no, there's no, it doesn't really exist in any realm beyond the real world. So that sort of thing Aristotle would talk about. Um, you know, he, he did everything from studying the orbits of the, of the st- of stars to trying to understand the biology of the human body. Uh, but a lot of his philosophical questions he was addressing uh, was trying to come up with a sophisticated understanding of things that aren't as easy to measure. Um, you know, questions about is there a, cr- a first cause? Those sorts of things would be in Aristotle's metaphysics. Okay, great. So now we can move on to Maimonides. So who was Maimonides? <laughs> so Maimonides is is um, is is so much. He's uh, you know he he is uh, Rabbi Maimonides. Literally, is his father's name Maimon. Um, so Moshe ben Maimon is um, is very much considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, argue, you know, certainly one of the greatest of the medieval Jewish commentaries. Uh, medieval Jewish both works, uh, both authors in in halacha and Jewish law, um, and also in in um, philosophy. And he lived well. He, he lived in many places. He was born in eleven thirty eight. 
in uh, in Spain, but quickly had to leave Spain um, because the Almohad uh, persecutions of of the Jewish community there. Uh, he ended up moving to Morocco. According to some, he was even in Israel at some point, eventually settled on Egypt. And his writings encompass pretty much the entire uh, corpus of, of, well, his most famous writings are perhaps the Mishnah Torah, which is um, a restructuring of all of halacha, all of Jewish law, in a textbook manner, going from simple to complex material and really putting the entire area of Talmudic law into, into readable, manageable work. He has other major works. And philosophically, uh, his most famous work was actually written in Arabic, was called the Dalalat al-Hairin, which is most famously in English known as the Guide for the Perplexed. Okay, excellent. So now we have clear who Aristotle was and who Maimonides was. So could you give us some examples of how Aristotle um, influenced Maimonides? So it, it's a great question um, and, and a debated question. Um, and to what extent we mean influence? It's certainly the case that the entire framework of understanding the world was predominantly Aristotelian in the Western Islamic world at that point, Spain, Morocco area. Um, the, the Muslim world was, were really the people who held at that point that they were the ones who had Aristotle. By this point in Europe, it was there was not that much um, of Aristotle's wisdom and knowledge. So if you were growing up in the world and you were trying to understand physics or, or astronomy and certainly philosophy, logic, you would be very much in it within the world of Aristotle. And Aristotle's um, positions, Aristotle did believe in a first cause, a prime mover, but he also believed, for example, the world has no beginning, right? That, that there's an eternal past uh, to the universe. Um, he believed that the first cause um, he believed you could philosophically prove that there is a first cause, but that it doesn't get involved in human affairs. So things like prayer, divine providence, prophecy, all of these things um, have a total, you know, are, are potentially incompatible with the Aristotelian worldview. So Maimonides likes some part of Aristotle. In fact, he likes a lot of Aristotle. He writes very complementarily of, of Aristotle. Um, in general, as, as like the greatest of the philosophers, and he sometimes says, you know, as far as the mind could go, if you're just using reason alone. Um, and he he particularly loves the idea that for Aristotle, behind all the world that we look at are deeper causes, which if you study the world carefully enough, you can deduce the causes. And then if you reflect upon those causes, you can deduce further causes. That, for Maimonides, is a really central issue. But he's also writing very much for scholars, Jewish intellectuals, of uh, which were in, in, there were quite a lot of, especially in Spain, um, in Muslim Spain, Andalusia, um, and to some degree, uh, Morocco and other places, uh, quite a large degree, Morocco and other places. And he was writing to them who were, who were very steeped in sophisticated Aristotelian thought, um, but who struggled with the literal meaning of Torah that seems to contradict it. So that's, now, how much is he influenced in his conclusions by Aristotle? A lot depends on who you ask and what you believe Maimonides' conclusions were. But that he definitely uh, was using the language and the framework of thought of Aristotle and admired very significant parts, that is indisputable. So you mentioned before that um, Maimonides was um, uh, under some sort of conflict between um, the lit a literal reading of the Torah, a literal reading of the Bible, and um, the ideas and the philosophy that he'd um, developed from Aristotelian thought. So could you give us some examples of, of those maybe contradictions and how the Rambam, how Maimonides dealt with that? 
Okay, so they fall into two categories, and and I'll caution. Um, yeah, even the words you use there are wading into a potential uh, um, dispute. You see, it's very difficult to interpret Maimonides, and maybe we'll get to discuss some of that later, or at least there's. I shouldn't say. Uh, I should say there's a lot of dispute about how to interpret him. But let's start with with two broad categories of areas. One is as you see, the literal meaning of the Torah versus the more sophisticated understanding, which Maimonides Rambam held did not just come from Aristotle, but from an accurate reading of the Torah and from its ancient um, Babylonian interpreters of the Torah, the Targumim, Unculus, and so on. So Maimonides actually argues, interestingly enough, that these ideas, the oneness of God, you know, the not the fact that God has no physical form and the apparent descriptions of physical form or spatial metaphors, whether it's talking about God's feet in Genesis, in Exodus 24, apparently, or whether it's talking even about an image of God in, in Genesis or whether it's talking about God sitting on a throne or, or anything like that. Maimonides actually argues that you do not need and this very badly misunderstood by a lot of people. He doesn't say we should change all these terms into allegoric terms. Uh, What he says is that actually every term used about God already has another meaning somewhere else in the biblical literature. And what you need to say, for example, the word regal, which means feet, which seems to be used about the elites of Israel looking at God and seeing under his feet. That word also means a word is a word for causation. Like when Jacob and Yaakov says to Esau, his brother says, I can't travel with you and the cause is the children. It's the regal hayalodim. Regal, the word for foot, is actually a word for causation as well as other meanings um, and so on. So he says that doesn't mean God's feet. It means what God causes. And, and Maimonides shows that every single time such a, an apparently uh, physical um, word is used, it's actually got another meaning that's already using in a more abstract way. And when you apply that to God, you see absolutely no, no problem. That's one type of category of of, of potential contradictions which he holds are just not contradictions at all you just need to know how to read Tanakh the bible properly the second type is more philosophical um Aris, particularly things like aristotle claiming the eternity the world never had a beginning and the possible implications of this um changeless unchanging unintervening god how does that work with jewish philosophy with questions of providence with questions of prayer with questions of prophecy and so on and there, the the uh, ostensibly what Maimonides seems to be doing, um, and I I believe he is doing, but what he seems to be doing is rejecting Aristotle without being able to disprove him. In many of these, he, he offers um, alternatives. He shows why they're coherent, why they're not disprovable. That that how you understand what he really holds on all this is open to a lot of debate. My own understanding, uh, well, I, I should say there's there's a range of possible opinions. I do believe he wasn't uh, like a hidden Aristotelian, but there are plenty of people, and there has been a view throughout history that perhaps he even was. But there's so many different ways to interpret him, and, and you know maybe that's something you do want to discuss, and, and we can get into a little bit. Okay, so maybe maybe let's talk about that. So what uh, what was he hiding his um, Aristotelianism or not? <laughs> so this actually, funnily enough, although it sounds like a very modern sort of idea, and it was made very popular um, by actually none, none other than a very famous uh, uh, 20th century thinker, which is Leo Strauss. And Leo Strauss um, popularized the view with some very brilliant uh, um, piece of work uh, where he wanted to argue not just about Maimonides, but about lots of thinkers in history, um, that uh, that they were really 
East, that their, their overt meaning is not the you know, it was masking a, a covert meaning. And the truth is, one of the people who had a lot of influence on Maimonides, on the Rambam, was a Muslim philosopher called Al Farabi. In fact, he quotes him a, a lot in the guide in the Murna Um And Al Farabi, quite self consciously, I mean, he, he wrote quite contradictory views when he's writing kind of mainstream Islamic law, Islamic books of the main Muslim population versus when he's writing philosophical works for the kind of intellectual elites. There's quite clear contradictions. And Strauss suspected that Maimonides does the same. Now, to slightly give a little... Now, some of that, I think, Straussian view is often brilliant. Um, but, you know, like, I don't forget who says a great thinker once said that human kind of brilliant thinkers either find uh, order where everyone else saw chaos or chaos where everyone else saw order. And sometimes they find the truth, like you suddenly see an ordered pattern in physics that people hadn't noticed. And sometimes we have a tendency to kind of um, put together facts that don't really belong together. And that's where conspiracies kind of emerge from uh, that are typically not true. Um, so Strauss is certainly brilliant. He, he does have some things going for him. And let me tell you what some of them are. The Maimonides does say um, in the end of his introduction that there's going to be that there's different books with different contradictions. And he has seven different reasons why, why books might end up with contradictions. And the seventh one is essentially the author is hiding something although i think that's misread by the way what he really says is you see people think it means you contradict so that the author will hide it from the masses and reveal it to the the elites but actually what he says is that there are going to be contradictions and he doesn't want the masses to pick up that there are contradictions not that he's hiding uh core ideas but uh but more than that he's actually very clear about what he's hiding he's hiding Markova, which means the work of the chariot or or the understanding of the opening chapter of the book of Ezekiel of Yechezka, when the prophet has this deep vision that uh, of the inner workings of the heaven and sees some kind of image on the throne of God, and that the Talmud says you can't um, analyze it with more than one person. And Maimonides says he's continuing the Talmudic idea. So the idea that he either thinks the Talmud was really an Aristotelian, uh, you know, didn't really believe in what it says it believes in is a bit absurd. And the idea that he's that he's hiding, you know, he, he's right. You, you can see that hiding in the, in the first seven chapters, third section, when he really gets into it, he literally jumps, 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 leaves you with hints. And it's clear that's the area he's, he's doing a huge amount of hiding. And there are some potential contradictions in some of those things he hints at and other parts of the book. But <clears throat> Strauss believed there were, there was really a deeper agenda going on. And he almost, I wanted to say, whenever Maimonides says he's not doing something, he really is. There's actually an amazing piece of work by, uh, um, Marvin Fox, who's a more traditionist interpreter of Maimonides, also very brilliant. And he, in fact, shows if you do to Strauss what Strauss does to Maimonides, you can also come up with very strange readings of Strauss. <laughs> it's actually quite brilliant. Um, but the truth is, even in Maimonides' own time, or I should say within certainly the generation after him, what happened historically was under the Muslim persecutions, a lot of the Spanish, um, Andalusian, I should say, the Muslim Spain Jews moved north. Some brilliant families <clears throat> and, and, and prominent families moved north into the Europeanized Christian parts of the world. Well, Christ, Jews and Christian parts of the world had never really encountered Aristotelian philosophy properly before. Um, and they were not alert to the questions that it raises and the answers it might provide. They were more steeped in areas of Kabbalah, which the Andalusian Jews had not heard and so you get this kind of culture clash going on and in that world the intellectual elites the spanish came with a very very aristotelian very much into this uh, muslim aristotelian philosopher called averroes ibn rushd and and they many of them were, were critical of maimonides for 
not going all the way and being Aristotelian and reconciling Judaism with Aristotle all the way. I mean, Maimonides does sometimes say we could reconcile this idea with, with if Aristotle ever proved it true, like the no creation. We could reread the creation chapter. There's, there's flexibility to do that. And they were saying either they started saying, you know, they, they, the one who translated the Dalalat al-Hairin from Arabic into Hebrew, Shmuel ibn Tiban, he actually said that Maimonides didn't go far enough and it was, it, he, he should have gone more Aristotelian. And then he writes in at least two places, at least Zelefi Pshuta. This is the simple meaning, implying perhaps there's a deeper meaning that Maimonides really is an Aristotelian. And there were a lot of those thinkers there who kind of, they, were, they themselves were deep Aristotelians um, and, and they wanted to read Maimonides as secretly hiding his real meaning. So it's not like uh, it's a modern idea it's certainly been an idea that fans of Aristotle in the Jewish world have hoped for, slash held of, slash wanted to believe, slash did believe already uh, quite early on. So you mentioned before that when um, um, Jews from Andalusia um, and from Spain encountered the more Kabbalistically minded Jews, what, what, how, did, how did the Guide of the Perplex get, um, how was it received uh, by those by those Kabbalists, Kabbalists, for example. So it's interesting. It seems, I mean, there's a lot of different books on what became the, the Maimonidean controversy, and there's lots of different things that could, Maimonides was controversial for many, many reasons. Almost, every, you know, his major pieces of work um, caused stirs and gained lots of supporters very quickly. But here, my reading is this, is the problem was not actually the guide per se. The problem was the way the guide was being interpreted. In other words, people rapidly recognized um, the greatness of Maimonides, although there was you know, plenty of opposition. But even the critics of Maimonides in his halachic works were largely taken to adding glosses because Maimonides didn't quote his sources. You know, He wrote opinions if there's only one opinion, whereas they held there could be a, a plurality of opinion, which was a very prevalent way of thinking in the Ashkenazic world. Um, and so, but largely speaking, they, they recognized his greatness. Uh, what bothered them a lot in the case of the guide was the way it was being taught. Um, and they were suspicious that the teachers could not really be, these these propagators of the guide couldn't really be right. And now, that's if you take them at face value. There are those who suspect, no, they really hated Maimonides as well. But I think in the main, you see the works are, are very much respectful of Maimonides, they're very critical of, um, of, the, of the interpreters who are turning him into Aristotelian. Whether that was just a respectful because he was too big to attack directly or not, one thing's for sure, they were very, very nervous about the way these Andalusian Jews were talking about Aristotelian ideas. That very much angered and upset them and scared them and so on. Um, and it reached a peak, you know, in the 1230s when it came to the actual, in, in Montpelier, there was actually a book burning, which was, although it was done by the church, was largely suspected to have been instigated or at least partly uh, supported by um, Jewish uh, opponents of the Aristotelians um, who were now even burning Maimonides. And that was kind of created a big shock reaction and actually pretty much ended the controversy because the counter reaction was so big. Uh, you know, you can't burn Maimonides' works. It's actually, although there was controversies around them, I think actually that the they were also uh, at different levels accepted. And, and certainly in areas where the Aristotelian interpretations were removed from them, they became even more widely accepted. And they were printed so many times across Europe and North Africa, um, you know, for the centuries that followed. Really, the, probably until almost the modern era, until modern science replaced Aristotle and our ways of thinking, 
you know, and Kabbalah spread a lot as well, which also had a big impact on, on the way we think philosophically about things, uh, you know. But I think in the main, one of the main reasons it's gone out of fashion nowadays uh, is because it's so hard to make sense of it when you don't understand the Aristotelian terms and frameworks he's using. I don't think Maimonides' ideas aren't as equally applicable to our time now. I think you can de-Aristotelianize them and the core content is not really affected very deeply. Um, but it's very hard to make head or tail of what's going on in the guide in key areas if you don't have a sense of, of what Aristotle was thinking and why people thought that way in those days. So why did Maimonides give such, um, put as it were, Aristotle on such a, 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 a high podium, you know, a high podium? Why did he um, accept him so much as opposed to just taking, like I assume um, the rest of the Jewish world was doing, or at least significant parts of the Jewish world, by giving... Um, giving authority to the text of the Bible itself, or at least the literal meaning of stuff. Why did uh, Mamondis feel the need to introduce Aristotle at all? So first of all, I don't, I, again, I have to um, challenge the phrasing of that. I don't think Maimonides, uh thought he was interpreting the Torah because of, of Aristotle. Um, I think, as I said earlier, I think he's telling you exactly how he, how, and I think the tradition we see of Sajagan before him, and the Targumim, the, the Unclus translation of the Torah before him, is very clearly anti any um, any anthropomorphism. And the truth is, even if you take the God, you know, the most literal readings of the Bible, God does not, people don't really see God. You know, God is, it can be everywhere. And even in words that sound like God moves, there's nowhere where God isn't kind of there. Nothing God can't really do. Um, we don't really see limits on God's power, limits on God's ability, limits on what God can know about. So it's very hard to to square that with any anthropomorphic vision of God, any humanized vision of God. It, it's clear, although uh, we use terms that, that God share, seems to share with with humans in, in language, even even a, a uh, kind of radical reinterpretation of Torah would not really would be quite dishonest if, if it didn't believe that in the final form. I'm talking for those who believe, you know, like documents over time or something that they don't believe in an invisible God who is uh, who can be absolutely everywhere, who knows what's going on everywhere and can do whatever he wants to do. So, you know, and certainly in the, there was a rich Jewish tradition long before Maimonides, and we don't find a rich counter-tradition, certainly not in the Muslim world um, and the Talmudic world, that ascribes genuine physicality to God at all. So I don't think he was coming from uh, Aristotle at all on that. On issues like potential eternity, the universe and stuff, he was. And I think that he didn't create that. That was what the entire intellectual world was going for. You have to remember, Aristotle was so brilliant that until the advent of modern science, it was very hard to conceive of reality in non-Aristotelian terms. And there's even large parts of Aristotelian thinking we have to this day, right? The idea that behind effects is causes, uh, you know, the idea of certain, you know, the basic structure of logic, which we've now advanced far further and so on. We owe a huge debt of Th thought to Aristotle. So in Maimonides' time, anyone who was serious about the world couldn't ignore Aristotle. Um, you couldn't ignore his arguments for, for the possibility of an eternal universe and an, un, an unintervening God and so on. They, these were not things that you could just ignore. Whether, Maimonides' own conclusions are not necessarily Aristotelian, unless you follow the Strauss, uh, you know, and the Andalus, that, that kind of worldview. But Maimonides' own son didn't believe that was the correct interpretation of his text which means it's very unlikely that it is the correct interpretation of the text. You know, uh, I think um, probably today a majority of readers, and, and even academics, and certainly in the rabbinic world, 
would say one of three things. Either Maimonides, exactly as he sounds like he's saying, is rejecting Aristotle, although he agrees he can't prove Aristotle's wrong, but he also proves Aristotle can't prove he's right on key areas of conflict with Torah. There are two other potential views. One that says um, that there's a Klein Halevi, Sarah Klein Halevi is one of the most uh, brilliant uh, academic scholars on, on Maimonides. And she argues that he was kind of, he was taking the traditional position, but he was, he was, I wouldn't say hedging, but he was keeping live the possibility that a more radical interpretation of Torah could be given if Aristotle or anyone in the future were to ever prove Aristotle right. And her thinking is that he's writing, believing the tradition is, is correct, but he, he, because nobody could prove Aristotle right, but he's leaving open the door, A, for anyone in that generation who just completely embraced Aristotle, as lots of intellectual Jews did, and B, is in case in the future someone does prove Aristotle right, does that negate the whole of faith? Well, it transforms certain aspects of it, but it doesn't negate it. And it crucially doesn't negate belief in, in one God who's incorporeal and and, and that, that keeping Torah is the ideal state of, of connecting to God and all that kind of stuff is still doable. Uh, but it, it does, you know, so he's keeping the door open. That's her view. Marvin Fox's view is that actually Maimonides believes the two are re- they're not reconcilable in a neat and simple answer, but the human brain is so incapable of grasping God properly that we need to bifurcate. Our mind needs to move from this side and then move from that side and approach at one angle and then at the other angle. And these angles are, are intention uh, and, and put into the same frame of language. They produce contradictions. Um, but they're not really contradictions. They're just, it's like uh, we're looking at, you know, when you see an image with two faces and it's all in one set of contours and, and you can move from this angle or this angle to grasp the whole picture. So these are uh, other probably more closer, to, in my opinion, at least more closer to the correct interpretation of Maimonides. Um, so getting short answer to your question is you can't ignore Aristotle in, in that world, certainly not if you're brought up in the intellectual climate that you're brought up in, but nobody else had come up with a more intelligent and intelligible and brilliant, actually, uh, method of understanding reality. Um, a. B, is I don't think Maimonides himself thought that he needs to really drastic, drastically get a wrong interpretation of Torah. Either Aristotle was a challenge or perhaps even a key to unlocking a deeper truth about the pathway to God. Um, but I don't think... I don't believe that Maimonides felt he was um, in any way compromising on his vision or understanding of Torah. If anything, Aristotle had stimulated certain important avenues of thought that he would have believed that that you would get to anyway if you're contemplating deeply enough on Torah or somebody was stimulating your mind to think deeply enough about God. And so just on on that final point, actually, um, I know that Maimonides, the Rambam, gave a few radical reinterpretations um, of various area of Jewish thought. I mean, just two come to mind, but perhaps the most um, prominent one is his reinterpretation of uh, the idea of demons. That's quite a well-known one, that most Jewish scholars took on the idea that there is a concept called demons in a very mystical and very um, almost a spooky way. And the Maimonides Rambam in a few places rejects um, the idea. That's just one, one example. And the second I- example that comes to mind um, is the use of certain, you know, curative, uh, mystical curative uh, remedies um, that the, the Rambam, for example, the, the Maimonides prohibits. And I think if I'm not mistaken, the Vilna Gaon, the Gaon of Vilna says that the Rambam was influenced by his Aristotelianism. And that's what, drew, you know, drew him to his rejection. Um, so is there a, have there been Jewish thinkers, um, 
especially modern Jewish thinkers, who think that the Rambam was influenced by Aristotle to the extent that he did reinterpret reinterpret traditional Jewish thought. Okay, so so yes, you, you cited two examples. I consider them more peripheral, although others will consider them very central um, examples. Um, there were other thinkers in the uh, you know around the time who seemed to have relatively similar views, maybe not as extreme as, as Maimonides. Uh, so I think that maybe that that's fair. The examples you give of, of the rejection of demons which appear in the Talmudic and Midrashic literature to be taken literally, um, and the idea of of you know the rejection of of certain healing things, which is less from that period, uh, probably more embraced later. Yes, those those might be examples where somebody could say, where, as you say, you quote very well the Vilna Gaon who said, you know, he's influenced by the accursed philosophy. Um, but I think that those are not, although, although yes, you can't really be a, a Maimonidean without taking that viewpoint, and there's very good reasons why you would. Um, I think, A, you didn't have to be a Maimonidean to take that viewpoint. Um, and, you know, you can see also different views throughout Jewish history of what's eye in Hora, for example, evil eye, which appears also, uh, you know, uh, in these sources and different views about them. Um, there are different perspectives. But I don't think when you get to the core areas that the guide really dwells heavily on, the kind of core philosophical picture of God and God's intervention in the world and all this stuff. I don't think uh, I think it, there you could again, you could argue my mind is somewhat influenced by by. Uh, Greek thought. But I think there's also another point here, which is if there's a good question against the naive understanding of Judaism, then, you know, let's take nowadays, you've got all sorts of, of questions on Judaism from scientific data, from a certain reading of the Torah. I don't think it would just be Maimonides who would turn around, or Sajigan would say the same thing. If science clearly demonstrates something to be false, then your understanding of the Torah is wrong. So if Maimonides did feel that certain things were scientifically definitively proven or, or clear, then he then then on the what he understood to be the traditional Jewish approach, we would be right to insist that anything that looked like it was uh, quoting those things is either wrong or misunderstood. You know, if it's biblical verse, it's going to be misunderstood. If it's a rabbinic writing, even in the Talmudic period, it's possible uh, as long as it's not you know about a, a halachic opinion. Um, but it's possible that it's based on misinformation, or it's possible that it's misunderstood. Those are the two uh, two options. So again, yes, okay. In those areas, I'll accept there is there is the possibility of of saying there's an influence, and I'm not saying there's no influence anywhere. But I'm just you know the core I think is fundamental philosophy. At least it can be argued um, is is much less influenced by by. Again, let me say, there's no question he very much was influenced by philosophy in the by Aristotle in the, in the way that we today would very much be influenced by. Um, the logic and science of our time when we think about anything you know we, we're going to use references from neurology from neuroscience from physics from all sorts of things that there are reference points um but it doesn't necessarily mean an idea we come up with has to be fixed to that reference point at least not on core issues yeah so just um maybe for a few final points um did the rambam did maimonides give us um a methodology to relate um our understanding of Jewish thought and rabbinic texts and uh, and scripture and the Torah itself and science. Did he give us the methodology that when we have um, science coming to clear conclusions that we should give, no matter how radical the, re- the reinterpretation is, we should reinterpret scripture and, and uh, rabbinic texts, etc. Is that the methodology that he lays down for us? 
I think so, but missing one or two, I'd add one or two points. I think he believes that you can, the not, you should not add hoc, just reinterpret text to fit in with things. You should look at the text again properly. You should find what words did you understand a certain way? Do they have meanings elsewhere? In other words, you, you don't just read a text to suit you. You realize there's certain flexibility within text, but Maimonides is quite rigorous about the fact that it's not a free for all. It's not open game uh, to just play around with the text. So, this is he takes it very seriously as the word of god and um at least i think he does i mean i think most interpreters do actually and um and he has he definitely has a methodology for look up those words everywhere else they occur what do they mean put it back together again what are the possibilities within one of those will be the the true answer um and number two i would say don't just accept that because something is a prevailing view in the scientific community is necessarily true. Now, today, where science is much larger, the scientific community and its methods more rigorous, would you relax some of that? Possibly. But in other words, for him, follow the logic where it leads. If it leads you to the to the incontrovertible place that something you were prepped to believe wouldn't be the case by your reading of Torah, if it's clear it gets there, then God speaks in two voices. He speaks in the voice of, of the book of science, the book of nature, and uh, and use you use um, testing and, and, and whatever methodology you use. Now it's empirical deductive and, and so on. But he also speaks to the Torah. And where they seem to talk about the same story, you need to look very carefully at both. Um, so I think he would say, you know, don't just accept something because the scientific community wants to, it to be true. But look, if the, if the evidence leads you there, then absolutely take it. Now look again at the Torah because uh, you know that's true and you know the Torah is true. And now look again at the Torah and see what are the actual possible interpretations of Torah within uh, correct reading. And he does the same thing with the rabbis, with, with the rabbinic literature of Chazal, although there he gives us less of absolutely clear methods of, of what to do and how to read. But he does believe the rabbis speak in riddles um, and are often concealing a deeper story because the masses can't get it. Now, he's understanding what the masses can't get um i think is is um is that the human brain struggles with really abstract things it projects itself and it requires an immense amount of maturity you look at the fifth chapter and son of the guide you already start to see this and it appears all the way through it requires huge amount of knowing where to stop moses moshe says knew where to stop Right, looking at the burning bush, he sees a revelation of God, but he knows he's mentally grasping God, and there he knows he's got to stop because at this point onwards he'll be projecting himself, and because of that he eventually merited to have the highest grasp of God, um, and that he says very it's very dangerous to be projecting yourself onto God, and you've got to be incredibly self-aware, and that's why without purifying yourself, the logical brain alone will not get you to the correct apprehension of reality. It will always have, even on very subtle levels, projection of self. Rabbi Daniel Rowe, that was fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us today. The pleasure, a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and visit us on Twitter for updates on every episode. Thank you.